It's Friday, January 12th. If we're not at war, why did we just go on a bombing run? We start here. In the span of an hour, the U.S. and U.K. hit dozens of Houthi targets in Yemen. Obviously, the Houthis didn't listen to all the warnings that the U.S. and the rest of the world had been giving. The Pentagon explains what's behind this dramatic escalation. You're not supposed to let your client take the stand, let alone give your closing argument. We have a great company. We're a very innocent company. A bizarre scene in Donald Trump's civil fraud trial. And the government runs ahead of schedule on a student loan fix. For those who have borrowed either 12000 or less, after 10 years, they would be receiving loan forgiveness. But is it enough? We're talking to Education Secretary Miguel Cardona with interest. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. For Israelis, the risks of the war in the Middle East right now are pretty clear for them. Do nothing and perhaps risk more violence from Hamas in the future, continue this war this way and risk the blowback from the entire Arab world. They've clearly made their choice. But even though the U.S. hasn't sent any ground troops to Israel, there are very real risks for Americans, too. Because in the last few months, we've seen some of them come to fruition. Iranian-backed forces targeted American troops in both Iraq and Syria. Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen launching two more attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. In some cases, vessels have come under attack. In others, American service members have been fired upon. Some have even been injured. Iran's support for Houthi attacks on commercial vessels must stop. Many of these attacks are coming from groups backed by Iran, especially the Houthi rebel group in Yemen. In fact, so many ships have been shot at as they sail past the Arabian Peninsula that many businesses have stopped shipping stuff through the Red Sea. It's gotten that brazen. Well, last night, the U.S. launched an attack. U.S.-led attacks involve a mix of Tomahawk cruise missiles and fighter jets, the U.K. joining us. Our team on the ground in Yemen reports that five cities have now been targeted and hit, including the capital. This was a series of strikes right into Yemen. So let's go straight to Colonel Stephen Ganyard, formerly of the U.S. Marines and State Department, now an ABC News contributor. Colonel Ganyard, what do we know about this strike so far? Uh, Brad, that it was a significant strike. So remember that over the past few months, uh, when U.S. troops in Syria and Iraq have been attacked, the U.S. has done sort of pinprick strikes, retaliation, to sort of warn off the militias that have been attacking U.S. troops. In the Red Sea, the Houthis have been so successful in disrupting trade and and, uh, seaborne trade uh, to move it down around Africa or not move it at all that really it called for some sort of a a, uh, united effort. Last night's strike was a fairly large concerted effort with the UK. The intent here is to take out any Houthi military capability that would allow them to continue these attacks on commercial shipping within the Red Sea. The US and the UK don't want to go back again. Mm. Now, part of the challenge is the kind of weapons that the Houthis have been using have been very mobile. Drones, uh, cruise missiles that are on on the back of pickup trucks. So it's not like the U.S. was going out and taking out uh, fixed sites along the coast, or there were surface to surface or uh, surface to any ship missiles that the U.S. could go after. So they had to go after bigger things like warehouses, like runways, mm. go after the infrastructure that the Houthis have been using that have allowed them to conduct these attacks. So we will see how effective they've been. A Houthi leader warning any U.S. attack 
will not go without a response. Obviously, the Houthis didn't listen to all the warnings that the U.S. and the rest of the world had been giving. So let's see whether the action last night will be enough to deter them and that Red Sea shipping can return to normal. We've seen other strikes against militant groups, but they've been much more targeted. I'm thinking about strikes in Iraq and Syria. This is this sounds like a whole new level, right? Right. So so the U.S. and the U.K. don't want to play whack-a-mole. They don't want to go after individual launchers, individual drone sites. They want to be able to take out all of the Houthi military uh, capabilities of disrupting commercial shipping in the Red Sea. Hmm. Most of the attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria have been small militias. They've been controlled essentially by Iran, but they're small groups and they're very difficult to go after. The Houthis are essentially a de facto government in southern Yemen. So they are uh, uh, running schools, they're running hospitals, they are running their own military. They've been fighting both the uh, Emiratis and the Saudis for many years. And so it is a de facto government with a de facto military. And so in this case, they've been able to harass shipping all along the Red Sea because they're well supplied by who? By Iran, because they are essentially a proxy from Iran in a way that that the small militias in Iraq and Syria are not. So much bigger, uh, more powerful military uh, supplied very easily just across the Arabian Gulf by Iran. Uh, And so the uh, shipping that's been disrupted uh, called for some sort of a concerted effort to take away all of the Houthi military ability to disrupt that shipping. And yet, Colonel Ganyard, the moment you mention Iran's basically being behind all this, does that mean that we're effectively firing on? Are we firing on Iran? Is that how we should see it? Or how do you even characterize a group like this when they're so clearly funded and backed by another country? This goes to the evil brilliance of Iran, that they first were able to use Hamas, a Sunni, not even a co-religionist part of Islam, but to use a Sunni group to disrupt the Abraham Accords, which were going to be a peace treaty between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which would have united all of the the Persian Gulf against Iran. So that has been derailed because they were able to use Hamas. They use uh, the Houthis in the same way. They They maintain their distance. There's no direct fingerprints. They're more than happy to supply them with funds and with uh, with missiles, with rockets, with military gear. So they are supporting the Houthis who they uh, will nudge along to uh, disrupt the shipping in in the Red Sea. So the whole idea here is that Iran has two powerful weapons against not only Israel, but against the U.S. and and any of the uh, countries that are supporting Israel. And that is their two proxies. So it allows the Iranians to step back and say, not us, we didn't do it. Mm. And as long as they can keep fingerprints off of any direct attack or anything that either the Houthis or Hamas is doing, then Iran is winning. And it allows them to not pay a price for the kinds of uh, uh, what what they're imposing on not only Israel, but on, uh, on the Western world. Wow. And in the meantime, uh, the the Houthi rebels, the the leaders of this group say they will be retaliating against the U.S. Of course, that'll depend on how much capabilities they have starting today. All right. Big moments here. Colonel Steve Ganyard, thank you so much. Thanks, Brett. Until this week, I didn't even know that a defendant could give their own closing argument in a trial. Didn't know it was an option. Apparently, in some cases, it is allowed, but you almost never see it because any defense lawyer would say it's a terrible idea. But yesterday, on the final day of former President Donald Trump's civil fraud trial in New York, the one where he's accused of lying about the value of his properties to secure better loan terms, Trump himself asked to be heard. Because there's an unconstitutional 
witch hunt. It's election interference at the highest level. It's a disgrace. What followed was bizarre, even by the standards of this case. ABC's Peter Haralambus with our investigative unit has been in court every single day of this trial. He was there watching this closing argument with his own eyes. And so, Peter, this case is so unprecedented in so many ways. It's the first where a former president has taken the stand in his own defense. And what he also wanted to be part of the closings? What what happened here? Look, there's been a lot of firsts in this trial, but the idea that former President Trump would get up there and deliver his own summation is kind of remarkable. In terms of a litigant with a team of lawyers giving a statement like this, that's something we never see. We, we asked the team of lawyers uh, who have roughly 100 years of experience trying these kind of cases. We asked them, have you ever seen this? Have you ever heard of this? So it's fair to say this isn't a standard practice by any means. Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> in most settings, especially in white-collar criminal defense, the uh, defendant hangs himself when they take the stand, you know? Trump has a team of people. He's not a pro se litigant. He has other people speaking for him. He ha- doesn't have a law degree. So the idea that he could just go up there and speak his mind is unheard of. But that's what he did yesterday. I mean, one of the old adages is he who represents himself has a fool for a client. Normally, if you have a jury trial, these closing statements are incredibly valuable in that a jury is flooded with information uh, over the course of, in this case, uh, months. Uh, And they need someone to walk them through the evidence, remind them kind of how it all connects. In this case, we have a bench trial. The judge is making the final decision here. He's kind of an expert on all these matters. So the summations are slightly less important in that way. But Trump and his lawyers have a little bit more latitude. There's one judge making this final decision about whether or not Trump can speak. And he's also the one making the final decision in the case. So uh, about one week ago, the judge's clerk reached out to the lawyers in the case and asked them about some logistical matters for the closings, how long they anticipate the closings would take, who's going to deliver them, and where they're actually going to take place. And Trump's lawyers casually mentioned, you know, it will take about two hours for us. Uh, These lawyers will present the arguments. And and by the way, Trump plans to deliver the closing as well. The judge heard that uh, over email and came to the conclusion, despite the objection of the attorney general's office, that Trump's actually the the person with the most at stake in this case. And he said Trump can actually give his own version of a closing statement uh, insofar as he follows a few ground rules. Mm. Essentially, he's going to be governed by the same rules that an attorney giving a statement would have to, to follow. So it has to be relevant. It has to be based in fact. He can't deliver a campaign speech. He can't attack the judge, the attorney general, the lawyers in the case, etc. Trump's lawyers respond, say these rules are simply untenable, and they begin to kind of squabble over a week-long email exchange to the point in which the judge responded in all caps. He's not granting any more extensions, and if he doesn't hear back from Trump's team, he's just going to share their email exchange on the court's public docket. Um, and they missed the deadline, essentially the, the opportunities off the table. Wow. And that's where we left off going into the trial yesterday. Trump had said on social media that he'd still like to do this, but he acknowledged that the, the judge was not going to let it happen. Yeah, that's what I thought, Peter. I thought the judge had said, like, well, then no, you're not going to get to talk. Sorry. Yeah. So essentially, as of Wednesday, the information that the court put out was this was not going to happen. He was not going to allow Trump to, to deliver his own closing address. He missed too many deadlines. He wasn't going to follow the ground rules, um, and it just wasn't going to happen. Over the course of the morning, over roughly two hours, um, the issue didn't come up at all. Trump's lawyers delivered lengthy uh, closing arguments. And as we were about to break for lunch, Trump's lawyer, Chris Keiss, brought it up one more time and explains that 
Trump has the most at stake. Can he please deliver his, his closing statement? And the judge considers it. He, he asks uh, Trump's lawyer and, and asks Trump about the ground rules one more time. And as they're kind of litigating these ground rules, Trump just goes right into it. Um, he, he clarifies that he doesn't believe the rules are, are OK. And then he launches into a five minute tirade, essentially, about the case, about the attorney general, the lawyers, the laws used against him. And Trump doesn't even stand up. He's sitting at his counsel table. His hands are clasped. He's calling himself an innocent man and railing against the judge, the attorney general, the case itself, uh, the laws that are being used against him, um, and essentially called this a witch hunt, uh, which is something he said Wait, over. <laughs> this is all the stuff they said he couldn't do. Yeah, he, he essentially went out there, broke all the rules that the judge made in the case, um, and walked out of there and took his lunch break. What did the judge do? The judge casually watched it from from his seat. At one point, when Trump went after the judge himself. The judge interjected and asked Trump's lawyer to, quote, control your client, end quote. But after about four to five minutes, the judge casually raised up his phone, which appeared to have a timer on it, and signaled to Trump, you're out of time. Let's take a break. Mm. And that's where he left it. At that point, Trump left the courtroom. I don't know if you can hear me because they don't allow mics, but this is a political witch hunt. The likes of he made some remarks to press in the courthouse. We have a great company. And then he took a car uh, further downtown to a building that he owns where he made a similar type speech to the press about uh, this trial against them. She's got serious Trump derangement syndrome. There's no question about Letitia James, the corrupt attorney general of New York. So we've proven our case. There's not one witness. Okay, well, then if you're Trump, why do this then? If this hurts your case... Why like, is it it's just venting or is there a reason to sort of go through this whole process of, of insisting on delivering the statement? I, I mean, logically, you'd think, you know, walking into a courtroom and dissing the judge who pretty much will decide the fate of your real estate empire um, is a terrible decision. But I think if you're Trump, there's a little bit of a personal reason here and there's a political reason. Personally, Trump is vehement on a few things here that the judge wrongly decided matters uh, about, for example, the value of his club in Florida and the value of some of his uh, namesake properties. And if you're Trump, something like this might have been personally satisfying just to walk in there and, and set the record straight in his eyes. And then on the campaign side of things, um, it, it's important to put this trial in the context of the larger political campaign that Trump's a part of. Increasingly, with four criminal trials coming up in the coming year, Trump has increasingly made this ongoing courtroom drama part of his campaign. Uh, every single just about case that I'm involved in is set up by Biden. They're doing it for election interference. And in a way, I guess you'd consider it part of the campaign, because if you really look he's at complained it, that he's being muzzled in the case. He's complained about the gag order in the case. He's complained about the bias of the judge in the case. I really have no rights in this and nobody, nobody thinks it's constitutional people. And in this case, he was able to walk in there um, and, and do exactly what the judge told him he couldn't mm. um, and say directly what he wanted to say in a manner that, all things considered, probably won't change the outcome of the case. That's interesting. But if you're trying to tell everyone, hey, I'm being silenced, you almost need to create the situation where the judge is telling you to stop talking. So, so he gets that. Oh, right? he brought the drama, and if anything, he kind of stole the life from the room. It's a lot of dense legal arguments, and 
that was the, the big drama of the day. And coming back to kind of how this was going to impact the case, um, he walks away with minimal harm, if anything. So in Trump's eyes, perhaps it's a win. Yeah, minimal harm for now, although... I guess we got to remember, Trump is on the hook for potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. His future of practicing business, his son's futures of practicing business in the state of New York are at stake. And of course, it's not just harm when we're talking about Trump. The judge in this case actually got a bomb threat earlier in the day before heading off to hear this, this wild series of closings. Uh, thank you so much, Peter. Thanks so much for having me, Brad. Next up on Start Here, it could be a big step for your student loan payments, and the education secretary himself is here to explain it. He's with Start Here when we come back. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So, no compromises here, because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free, then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. So do you remember a couple of years ago when President Biden implemented the most sweeping student debt plan in history? 95% of the borrowers can benefit from these actions. That's 40 Three million people. The plan was to forgive tens of thousands of dollars for lots and lots of Americans. But then, of course, the Supreme Court overturned it, threw it out, saying it gave the Education Department too much power over what had been signed legitimate contracts. There is a right way and a wrong way under our system of government, and the ends don't justify the means. The right way is to go through Congress. And remember, the clock was ticking here. Under law, the pause on student loan repayments was coming to an end. The Biden administration tried to come up with other ways to soften the blow. We'll use every tool at our disposal to get you the student debt relief you need and reach your dreams. They instituted this program called SAVE, Saving for a Valuable Education, that's already doing a few things because lots of Americans have what are called 
income-driven repayment plans, where maybe 10% of your income, no matter what your income is, goes to paying back your student loans. Well, under the SAVE program, nowadays, if you're making a minimum wage, your monthly payment is $0. These are some of the things they've done. There was another part of this plan being floated, though, that if you only took out, say, 10000 bucks, you've been paying part of your income for years, you should just get that entire amount forgiven. Poof, it's gone. They were planning to roll that out later this year. Instead, that is going into effect right now. This news is dropping as we release this pod. We're going to break it down with Education Secretary Miguel Cardona himself. He's with us right now. Mr. Secretary, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, how does this work? Great to be with you. Uh, look, this is another another example of what we're, what we're trying to do to make higher education more affordable, more accessible, um, keep it student-centered. So basically, uh, we're encouraging folks to sign up for the SAVE plan, which is a saving on a valuable education plan. It's the best income-driven repayment plan. Uh, what we're trying to do is get people to see that they can't afford to go to college. They can take that next step. For far too long, I've, I've heard of too many students and families say that college is so out of reach that they're not even thinking about it. For this country to progress, we need more folks to take advantage of it. So basically, uh, for those, as you mentioned, for those who have borrowed either twelve thousand or less. Um, after ten years, they would be receiving loan forgiveness. But uh, we were going to roll that out in July of this year, and uh, eager to do that. But um, instead, we're going to be rolling it out today. Um, we're really proud of that. Uh, we're going to we're going to move forward with this earlier um, to provide debt relief to uh, to folks out there that have uh, less debt. But as you know, if you're paying it for ten years, it's enough. Mm. Uh, they've they've done their part, and uh, it's time to release that debt so they can move on and and continue to grow in in their finances at home. You said it's the best plan for majority of borrowers. However, I think it's like only 7 million people have signed up at this point. It's not near a majority of borrowers who've actually signed up. What happens to everyone else who hasn't done that? And I guess, why is there a a disconnect with people actually signing up for this if it's going to save them money? You know, we are 7 million um, so far. Uh, we've, We've gone up almost 2 million since November. So the, the, there's more attention now. We're going to continue pressing this message. There's a lot of information out there about debt relief. Um, some people think that if they apply for that, would they still be eligible if we go uh, for the negotiated rulemaking that we're going through? Um, we're going to continue to, to press the message. We want more folks on save. People can save money You know, when it's fully implemented uh, in the summer of this year. Undergraduate borrowers are going to see their payments uh, cut in half. Uh, that's significant, especially at a time where we know uh, many folks are struggling to make ends meet. Um, so we're doing our part. We're going to continue to get the word out. Uh, we know it's the best plan that's ever been presented in this country. And, um, you know, we got a campaign across the country to get more people to sign up. So this isn't a law, right? This is a, a directive from the administration. Does that mean it could go away with a snap of the fingers of a Republican administration? And should that uncertainty make borrowers nervous? Well, no, I, I would tell borrowers to sign up for it. It's there. I mean, it would have to it would take a long process uh, for this to be taken away. You know, these, these regulatory processes that we go through take a long time to develop and process, you know, negotiated rulemaking. Uh, it is a long process. No, you know, the, the popularity of it and folks benefiting from it, it's going to be hard to take away a benefit that we know so many Americans are benefiting from. So uh, I would tell folks that are listening, look, check it out. Go to studentaid.gov, find out about the save plan, see if it works for you. And if it does, you're going to see benefits. Again, the goal here, this is one strategy among many that is intended to open the doors to higher education, make it more affordable so that more folks can access it. 
Well, then, if we're talking about sort of the broader student loan area, if this is one of many, like repayments for student loans restarted recently, they've been so frustrating for people, Mr. Secretary, right? Like they're getting bills for the wrong amounts. If you call somebody with a question, you're on hold for so long that you hang up. What, I mean, what is the root cause of these issues right now at this very sort of precarious moment for so many Americans? I can, yeah, I can understand the frustration when folks are getting back on, especially after they were, uh, expecting debt relief uh, that the Supreme Court shut down. Right. Uh, we're, we're making sure that we're communicating with borrowers regularly. Uh, we're penalizing servicers when they mess up. Uh, I'm going to be very frank with you. Uh, we've penalized uh, servicers millions of dollars already when they mess up on accounts or they send the wrong information. We're holding them accountable. We're also providing a grace period of a year without penalty if, if uh, borrowers struggle to make their payments. We understand for so many Americans, this is a difficult time to uh, restart payments, which is why we provided that grace period. We have a new fresh start program for delinquent borrowers to give them a fresh start. And then the save plan, which is, in my opinion, you know, just as big as debt forgiveness. It, it gives folks uh, an easier way to um, pay their bills back and, and continue with life. Hey, last question for you, because, again, the save program, like you said, this is if you've been paying for 10 years, yeah. right? So like you've already been in this system, maybe you've paid even more than the $10,000 you're supposed to owe. But there was obviously the other plan that was just going to cancel debt, ten dollars to $20,000 in debt. Right. Is there a plan to come back to the Supreme Court with something that might work? And what's the status of it? Yes, there is a plan. Uh, the plan is not uh, necessarily to go to the Supreme Court, but we know that we're going to get sued the moment we put it out there sure. by Republicans who are trying to shut it down, um, despite many of them getting debt forgiveness themselves. Um, look, uh, the president talked about $10,000 in debt forgiveness. He settled on $20,000 for those who are Pell eligible. We were fighting for that, and the Supreme Court shut it down within an hour. We had our plan B set up. It's a negotiated rulemaking process. that we're, it, it started the, the moment the Supreme Court made their decision. Um, so the bottom line is we're going to continue to fight. We've provided already $132 billion in debt relief, more than any other administration. We're going to continue fighting. When we can do things a little bit quicker, like the announcement today, we will. Um, again, public service loan forgiveness. You know, people forget for public service loan forgiveness was available. These are public servants. Oh, this is like where you're a teacher or you do public service yeah. and you get all, all wiped out. You're a teacher, veteran. Uh, you know, t you pay for 10 years, uh, your loans are forgiven. Well, only 7,000 people benefited from that. 98% of the people were, were turned down last administration. We're up to 750,000 people, over $50 billion for um, public servants. We know they get into public service to make their community better, not to become millionaires. So we want to help. This SAFE program is another example of how we're trying to help keep costs low and make college more affordable. Secretary Miguel Cardona, thank you so much. All right. Thanks for your time. All right. One more quick break. When we come back, eBay's bid to avoid a trial was going nowhere until the government offered them a buy it now button. One last thing is next. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And one last thing. Since the early days of muckraking journalism, there's always been big corporations who want to kill negative stories about them. Company executives have tried intimidation tactics, power plays, but what about just sending spiders to a blogger? Who, who could devise these torturous 
packages and, and, and the depravity. Ina and David Steiner are the creators of a blog called E-Commerce Bites. They have a pretty niche audience. They write content for online sellers. And at times, they were critical of e-commerce giants. Well, in 2019, when Ina Steiner published a story about eBay and Amazon, she started to receive strange things in the mail. Fly larvae and live spiders, a box of live cockroaches, a sympathy wreath on the occasion of the death of a loved one. At one point, they opened up a box to find a bloody pig mask. Very waking up with a horse head in your bed, you know? On a Saturday afternoon, we got a phone call from a, a, a shop in Arizona that said that uh, they couldn't deliver the wet specimen that we had ordered. And not having any idea what a wet specimen was. I... The Steiners were terrified. A message in their inbox said, do I have your attention now? The messages, if you read the language, I, I never in a million years would have thought it was a company. And it turns out this was all part of a revenge campaign at the hands of eBay's high-level executives. eBay executives were not merely unhappy with the victim's coverage, they were enraged. One of those executives texted that he wanted to, quote, crush this lady, unquote. Yeah, this was not like underlings. According to court documents, it was only half an hour after Steiner had published her story in 2019 when eBay's CEO at the time sent another top executive a message saying, quote, if you're ever going to take her down, now is the time, end quote. It's unclear whether he knew what would happen next, but the harassment became unrelenting. For a while, they succeeded, psychologically devastating these victims for weeks as they desperately tried to figure out what was going on and stop it. In 2020, seven former employees were convicted on stalking charges. What about the company? eBay was facing six felony counts itself. Well, yesterday, the Department of Justice announced eBay has entered into a deferred prosecution agreement, meaning the prosecution stops for now, but they have to admit all these stories were true. The company will also pay $3 million. In a statement, eBay said in the years since, new leaders have joined the company, it's strengthened its policies, and that it's committed to making things right with the Steiners. Well, they better get ready, because just last month, a judge ruled the Steiners' lawsuit against eBay can proceed, and you'd hope no one's sending spiders to dissuade them. What I don't know the answer to is, were the spiders bought on eBay? Like, you'd think you'd at least support your own company. Gosh. Start Here is produced by Kelly Therese, Jen Newman, Brenda Salinas-Baker, Vika Aronson, Cameron Chertavian, Anthony Ali, Mara Milwaukee, and Tara Gimble. Ariel Chester is our social media producer. Josh Cohan is director of podcast programming. I'm our managing editor. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Thanks to Lakia Brown, John Newman, and Liz Alessi. Special thanks this week to Chris Berry, Andrew Evans, Aaron Ferrer, Cheyenne Hazlett, Arthur Jones II, John Santucci, and Ann Flaherty. I'm Brad Milkey. See you next week. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.